0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. Happy to be here with you today. Today, I'm aiming to discuss genetic testing in psychiatry. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is invite. The other day, in a class of genetic counseling students, second year students, I asked them how many of them had been approached by friends or family and asked about the accuracy of genetic testing in psychiatry. And almost all the hands went up, which was amazing to me. So not even genetic counselors, genetic counseling students. And And the truth is, even for someone with a great deal of expertise in the field, it's a very hard question to answer right now. It's not so easy, and we're getting these questions. So I'm very pleased today to have with us on the program Jordan Smaller. uh, Dr. Smaller is Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the Director of the Psychiatric and Neurodevelopmental Genetics Unit in the Mass General Center for Genomic Medicine, and the perfect person to talk with us about this topic today. Hi, Jordan.
1: Hi, Laura. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: So I really, uh, there's two different types of tests, of both uh, quite important and both sort of like unfolding as we speak um, that I'd like to talk about, and I'd like to separate the two of them. One is this pharmacogenetic tests to look at what medications people should or shouldn't use for psychiatric conditions, and the other is polygenic risk scores in genetics that really are uh, attempt to be predictive of who might get sick. So those are really different things, so yeah. Um, So I thought maybe we could start by talking about the pharmacogenetic testing.
1: Okay, sure.
0: So let me ask you the simplest question. Is there any solid evidence that pharmacogenetic testing can improve outcomes in psychiatry?
1: Good question. Well, it in part depends on how solid you want your evidence to be. Uh, there is evidence uh, from a number of studies which have largely been either retrospective or uncontrolled or uh, I think in many cases too small to, to have very clear answers that some of the tests that are available now may have some value in a clinical setting. However, uh, the, the issue of pharmacogenetic testing in psychiatry actually has a relatively long history in the sense that it's been known for a while, and the FDA has recognized, that many of the drugs that we use to treat psychiatric disorders, including antidepressant drugs and antipsychotic drugs, are importantly metabolized by liver enzymes in the P450 system. And this was particularly important years ago when the predominant antidepressants were tricyclic antidepressants. And the degree to which you metabolize those quickly or slowly could have uh, effects on the blood levels of those drugs. And the problem was that high levels of tricyclic antidepressants can have cardiac arrhythmogenic effects. So people you know, were wary of that. More recently, many of the drugs that we uh, use fortunately have less toxicity, but there's been tremendous interest in like, still, you know, using these kinds of tests to predict response. And before I sort of maybe give you uh, my take on the evidence, I'll just say that the argument for using or having valid pharmacogenetic tests in psychiatry is pretty strong. That is, there's a tremendous desire for something like this for obvious reasons in a way. If I'm seeing a patient as I as I do every week in psychiatry, uh, you know, I have very little to go on to know how to select an initial treatment, one antidepressant over another, or if somebody is not having a great response or having side effects, could that be, you know, what's the reason for that? We don't have a lot of biomarkers. We don't have a lot of treatment selection options. And the problem is that many of these drugs take weeks to show their effect. So you don't even really know if the medicine you started with is really going to play out well until maybe weeks later. And if somebody's actually in an acute episode of something like a, a major depressive episode or a, a manic episode or psychosis, every day counts to them and to their families and to to, you know, we who work with patients in, in those situations. So yeah, there's so a tremendous... A, so it's a great
0: indeed, target. It's a great, great target,
1: target for pharmacogenetics. Right. And there was this kind of sense that, well, we know something about their metabolism, and you know, so we already have something to go on. However, what's happened is that uh, psychiatric genetics has has advanced in many ways. This great need and this wish for something clinically to do, I think has created a willingness on some people's parts to uh, not necessarily delve in deeply to what the evidence base is. And the reality is that, for example, for uh, there, there are now dozens of these commercially available tests for uh, treatment response. My overall take, I'll tell you this, sort of the bottom line, is that not, I'm, I'm not convinced about their value in the clinical setting. Uh, they have not really, to my Uh, satisfaction, at least, demonstrated uh, a a clear benefit that outweighs some of the ambiguities and the risks and the cost. There was a trial done about, uh, well, it was reported this year, although it was completed last year, which was one of the few prospective randomized trials, it was a a single blind study that used one of these fairly popular uh, commercially available tests. And in that study, they you know compared getting the test, having the clinician get the test uh, to treatment as usual, and the result was that on the primary endpoint of how much people 's depression symptoms abated over a two month period, it didn't show a significant benefit. Mm-hmm. But on secondary endpoints of how many people uh, had at least a 50 percent response or actually went into remission, there was statistical significance. And there were a couple of other sort of ancillary measures that suggested some benefit. But for the most part, you know, the evidence base, I think, is still relatively weak. And uh, there are now, you know, society statements and sort of rough guidelines or, or consensus statements that have come out and that have all for the most part said, it's a great idea. There's a tremendous need. Uh, but the evidence is still not quite there for us to, to endorse uh, or enthusiastically uh, embrace this.
0: So this is so, a reasonable question here to say, is this a chicken soup situation? Like, is this mm-hmm. a situation where it just, it can't hurt? So obviously there's cost. Right. And um, I know that sometimes the, Sometimes that cost can be paid or partly paid by insurance, but that's not, that doesn't make it go away either. We can't like push to insurance costs for things that aren't helping. So clearly there's costs. But if you have somebody who said, I'm willing to pay for it, I'm informed, I understand that it's not necessarily going to help, are there other reasons not to do these tests?
1: I think there are several other considerations that would weigh against it. And I'm I'm not going to say that I don't think it's useful in any circumstance, but there there are other considerations to think about. So there's the cost, as you say. There's also the fact that many of these tests, at least the commercially available ones, take an approach which is a kind of a traffic light approach. So what they will do is they will assay a a variety of genes and then return some version of a report that says – you know, this class, this series of drugs is probably okay based on what we're seeing, largely based on these uh, metabolizing enzymes, but also a few other things. Um, This class, you might need to use caution with, or or this group of specific medicines. And then this group is kind of the red light group that, that you really should proceed with great caution. So one problem with that is, in some ways, it's great because it really sim—it's exactly what a clinician would like. In many ways, it simplifies things. I—I I get it. It's green, yellow, yeah. red. Yeah. But um, yeah. But on the other hand, uh, people are very, for the same reason, I think, very susceptible to overvaluing that. So if you tell me that the, something is red, and I know my clinical judgment that for other reasons, this is probably the right medicine for this patient. Uh, The patient, for example, may say, "What do you? You can't prescribe me a red medicine." Right. Uh, And I, I myself might think, you know, wait a minute, am I going to be liable, or is am I going to do harm? Right. And in fact, these these tests are not that good that they can really tell you that, and they're not that good for several confounding reasons. One is genotype has an effect, certainly, on uh, drug response. We know that. But so do a bunch of other things. Even if you're talking about these drug-metabolizing enzymes, there are other drugs that, or medications that people are taking or even foods that will have varying degrees of suppressing or inducing these enzymes. And people are not really accounting for that. There's uh, you know, environmental factors. There's their underlying medical condition and so on. So it's a piece of the puzzle, but it's certainly uh, – Yeah, could- I
0: was – thinking about that, I went to look at some of these sample reports. I'm not going to name any of the companies because I don't want to either appear to be attacking or endorsing any particular company. But uh, I looked at the sample reports. I noticed two things, and this is very much in line of what you're just saying. They don't say anything about effect size. Mm-hmm. So, if you're saying that there's um, initially, there's a, a chance of side effects, if it's 2% or something, if it doubles the risk of side effects, that's a pretty substantial increase, and yet it's still only four percent, right? Right. So you might not want to rule it. But I, I would think that if you're, unless you're really, unless you're really involved with the genetics of psychiatric medication, you'd be very hesitant to prescribe something that's marked with a big red stop sign.
1: That's right. I think so, and I think that you know, uh, very few of us. Uh, even I find, and I think about this all the time, I, even I find the various combinatorial, you know, combinations, if that's a phrase, uh, of, you know, <laughs> of these pharmacokinetic alleles and other things and other factors that you need to factor in, confuse it. Um, but certainly if I'm in a busy clinical practice or um, the patient who has seen uh, some things have a green, yellow or red warning on them, uh, I, I might not dig deeper. And that might, have a cost to it as well. Another thing I think is um, that we don't actually have again. Uh, well, I guess related to that same issue, simply is 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 that uh, you know the evidence that the that these things predict side effect levels in many of the commonly taken medications is not all that great. But this is certainly seeming to value the kind of thing that you just said very highly and and making a clinical decision about medication choice or is often very difficult. It's, it's often the case that people are on multiple combinations of medicines because that's what it takes sometimes. Um, and so you start to lose the clarity that you were hoping for. Right.
0: The other question that springs to mind, and I don't know if you have any advice for me, for other people, you know, um, because I'm familiar with what you've been saying, my knee-jerk response when somebody asks me about this sort of genetic testing is a lot of skepticism, right? No, be very careful. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not tending to advise it. On the other hand, there's always a part of me that's worried about missing the big breakthrough. Because this is, as you started out saying, this is a great area for pharmacogenetics, and I never want my sort of innate skepticism to get too inbred so that I miss the time that you get the breakthrough. So I find myself going back and looking at these companies, and it's, it's very I, I I should be able to assess this, but it's very hard, right? You have it's to very look hard. At the actual research, how big are the numbers? Uh, I've seen studies where they only followed the patient out for three weeks. And as you started out saying, these drugs often take more than that to. To, to take effect. So what right. how meaningful is is information. I try to look at did they quote only papers by people who are on their medical boards? Is is that a fair way to to, to be skeptical about a company? It, I find it hard. And like look, there's a ton of junk out there. I don't know if you saw it, but um this I will mention by name because it was in print. Kristen Brown in Bloomberg uh published a piece a couple of weeks ago about origin, do you still say it origin when it's got a three instead of an E? Anyway, I think it's <laughs> what I'd say, where there were whistleblowers saying that their technical capacity was so weak that they, they'd test the same person and the same sample and come up with different results on the same genes, which they then had to develop a program to reconcile because they couldn't explain why they said you were this genotype on one test and another genotype on another test. So there's a great range of fr- – from absolute junk to people making a real stab at trying to use the best science that we have. And I find it hard personally to know uh, where to send
1: people. Um, yeah. Do you have any – I think any- you're, you're- – well, I, I think you're picking up on something really important about this. And it's a worry I have, which is that the whole notion or the whole field will get determined. You know, the, the, the willingness of payers to uh, cover things like this or the confidence that people have in them will be adversely affected by if there are a lot of early problems with it. And so I think the skepticism and the conservatism is is warranted but i also take your point that you know simply being a cynic and debunking things is not helpful to people either so i think you're, you you need to be open to the possibility as i said in the beginning gosh i wish i had uh all kinds of things that would that would improve outcomes for patients the the kinds of situation that you're just mentioning there we hope is a real rarity however it is true that that many of these things are not subject to the same regulation that uh, FDA-approved diagnostics uh, can be. And so you do always want to worry about uh, and do a little bit of due diligence, especially as clinicians, in the, the data and the reputability of a particular test you're choosing. There was an interesting uh, paper, very small scale, but nevertheless, I think, intriguing, where several researchers basically had a a group of patients who had not responded well to uh, uh, antidepressants, and then they sent out several of these pharmacogenetic tests, commercially available ones. And what they found was uh, they didn't all agree, even on the genotypes, Uh, they didn't necessarily agree on the phenotypes, and uh, they didn't agree, given a genotype, Uh, about what recommendations should be made for that patient. It wasn't complete disagreement, but it certainly wasn't uh, clear agreement. So even when you're measuring the same circumstance, the same patient, uh, you may get slightly different answers. And it's not clear what the right answer is. So I think a little bit of wariness and and circumspectness is appropriate. So we're uh, in a very
0: buyer beware situation.
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: Are you surprised that um these tests are covered by insurance at this point in time
1: well uh yeah i guess initially i was kind of surprised i mean i think that um again there is some evidence and if you you know it depends how you read the literature you know there are a couple of uh controlled trials although not necessarily double blind and there's usually industry involvement uh in the trial and writing the paper um but one take on the, on the literature is that, you know, you put it all together, it looks like there's, there's some benefit, and um, why shouldn't people have that option? But yeah. I think we've been discussing that there are these costs.
0: Yeah, that's, it's confusing. Do you think there should be, do, do you think there should be more regulation? Do you think that there is a type of regulation that would be useful? Let me put it that way, because, you know, that's the only interesting question, really, we we may yeah. we may desire for their things to be more regulated, but if they can't be done well, then it's not useful. So, is there a type of regulation in your mind that would Im- improve um, the situation for the for the for the customer?
1: The I patient? you know I think that usually when we talk about how useful a test is or how accurate a test is, we think about these two elements: analytic validity and clinical validity. I certainly think the analytic validity, if we can't establish that uh, is a problem. And, and it does seem like in some cases there is a a fair bit of variability in how people are measuring things or what they're measuring. And so I think, uh, having that, uh, established is, is a good baseline essentially. And regulating that is, is sensible The you know, the clinical benefit and how you demonstrate that, I think that showing in a randomized, believable set of studies, uh, in, a, you know, in a, you know, the same kinds of ways that we think about diagnostic tests and certainly uh, medication approvals, um, I think given the, the scale, scope, and potential downsides of, of going wrong is, is warranted in a situation like this. I don't want to overregulate things or I wouldn't advocate that so that people can't you know, have options, but um, one in five Americans are taking an antidepressant, for example. That's uh, a lot of people, and these tests are are very, you know, are are, are big business. And if they hold benefit, uh, then I I think they're spectacularly, you know, a, a good advance. We just have to have that confidence. I think I'll so tell you I, that. You
0: know, so I've been thinking, been thinking about this in other in other areas that to require all tests to have a high level of of uh, approvals, you know, sort of equivalent to drug approvals um invites an enormous amount of regulation right so so yes. then you have everything's very expensive to bring to market and you have to expand what our agencies there's there's not a lot of appetite for that anywhere right now right. not not on not on either side but it, what's occurred to me is that if you if you flip that script a little bit and say okay uh, you can have unregulated tests out there as we have right now and a buyer beware market, but to give tests that think they have good evidence, a chance to somehow get some sort of seal of approval. Like, I think that would be really yes. useful.
1: I um, think that's right. That makes a lot of sense. So I bit agree. Of a soapbox
0: I'm, for me. Yeah.
1: No, I think you're right. I mean, you know, the reality is I, I, uh, I do a lot of research, but I see patients um, every week. And uh, despite the fact that I'm in this field, I've never actually ordered one of these tests. Um, It's not that I couldn't see a scenario where it could be helpful, but it hasn't ever come to the point where it seemed clear to me that that was the next thing to do based on the, uh, you know, based on the kinds of things that that are being measured. The other thing that's a little bit um, strange about it is, the, propri- the, the commercially available tests typically measure these P450 enzymes, but then many of them throw in what are called pharmacodynamic as opposed to pharmacokinetic targets. These are you know, variants in genes like the serotonin transporter gene or some other variant that uh, somebody has reported might be associated with treatment response. And first of all, the evidence for that is really, I think, not there. And secondly, we don't know how that's being used in the test because it's a proprietary algorithm. Uh, So that also is a little bit um, off-putting to me. Uh, And your point about the chicken soup, I was at a a conference actually and went up to one of the the desks where one of these companies was sort of uh, marketing a test. And I said, you know, really, what's the evidence that, for example, those pharmacodynamic things actually have any benefit? And this person who was... What the company said. Well, you know, I mean, it's true that some of this might just be the placebo effect, but but isn't that good? And <laughs> no, <laughs> it, no, not if you're marketing it as uh, something other than a placebo. Yeah,
0: no, we could have some sort of reverse placebo effect to the entire idea of genetic testing. You yeah. know, things right. have consequences. So let's let's shift gears a little bit because um, you um, recently published a paper on polygenic risk scores in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these are, you know what? You're the expert. I'll leave it in your hands. Why don't you give an explanation of what these tests are?
1: Sure. Um, Well, a polygenic risk score in general is a, is usually a score that sums the effects of common variants that uh, are associated with to varying degrees. Some, disease, or outcome of interest. So somebody does a genome-wide association study and every SNP or variant that's looked at gets some effect with respect to the thing they're looking at, let's say it's depression or schizophrenia in our case, if you add up all of those effects, um, multiplying by the number of uh, alleles that that a given person has at, at each of those variants, you get a score, and that score... Uh, can be applied in in an independent sample, and so it's a summary measure of the common variant vulnerability to whatever it is you're measuring, which totally has made right. it very appealing
0: so so we know that certain say copy number variants, maybe occasional genes, but certainly a deletion or duplication syndrome like twenty two q and eleven can have a profound implication for the risk of psychiatric disease. Um, And then there's the rest of the, well, there's something going on in your genes, but you can't point to any single variant, right? And that's captured in these polygenic studies.
1: That's right. Now, in the rest of your genes, you might be able to point to some things that are most strongly associated in the, you know, let's say you measure 10 million variants and they're, they're common variants. There's some things that are going to be statistically very strongly associated but their effect size will still be tiny. Uh, You know, these common variants that genome-wide studies identify typically have an effect size of an odds ratio, let's say, of 1.1 or something, whereas 22Q11 has an odds ratio of more like 30 or 40 in terms of its risk for schizophrenia.
0: Right. So the 22Q11 maybe is 15 years ago the thing we thought we were going to find more of. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we found these thousands and thousands of tiny associations. Okay, so they have now put together, based on very large uh, cohorts of individuals, uh, polygenic risk scores for schizophrenia. And you took a look at it, and why don't you tell us what you found?
1: Sure. So. We were interested in this particular question. So these polygenic risk scores for schizophrenia, which among the psychiatric disorders, that's probably the one that has been best developed in terms of its ability to explain some of the risks of schizophrenia. If you look at the research studies that have been done, if you're in the top 10% of that score distribution, you might have anywhere from, let's say, a, a, say about a 10 to 20-fold increased risk, which is actually pretty high. Pretty big. Um, they explain altogether maybe something like 20% of the, the overall risk. So it's certainly not the majority. But we were interested in if this kind of thing ever does make it to the clinical real world, how would a score like that perform? Not in the somewhat ascertained, rarefied world of research study samples, but actually in a health system. And so we took advantage of a consortium that we've recently established among a number of institutions called PsychEmerge. And this is a collaboration between us at Partners Healthcare and Vanderbilt and Geisinger and Mount Sinai. And we said, let's take this uh, schizophrenia polygenic risk score and then in the health system data, where we also, because of biobanks, have genomic uh, data, ask, what is the effect size in, let's say, the top 10% versus uh, the, the bottom 10% or the, the rest of, uh, of the population? And by the way, when I said that it was eight, uh, 10 to 20-fold increased risk, those are estimates that compare the top 10% to the bottom 10%, which oh, might not so be that's actually very what you different, did.
0: right? So right. I think that I assumed that you were comparing it to population average. So if there's a 1% chance of schizophrenia, you're talking about a 20%. Risk,
1: but right, it's not quite that high. No, right. Okay. So what we did in this study is we actually compared it to both. Uh, that is, we did the top ten percent versus the bottom ten percent, and the top ten percent versus the other ninety percent. And the answer was that we clearly, highly statistically, pick up the signal. Um, so you know the p values were extremely strong. It's picking up a signal for schizophrenia, uh, and. If you look at the effect size, if the top 10% versus the bottom 10%, this is in about 100,000 people across these four healthcare systems, it was about a, a four and a half fold increased risk. So lower than the research study world, mm-hmm. but you know that's a that's not nothing. If you look at the top 10% versus everybody else, it's about a 2.3 fold increased risk. Mm-hmm. So. A couple things about that. One is, um, you know, on the one hand, that's not a huge, that's not a predictor that you would use in in some kind of diagnostic way. However, on the other hand, it's intriguing that that effect size is not all that different from the kinds of effect sizes we see for risk factors in other settings, like, you know, in a Framingham heart study, any given one of those predictors, hypertension or Smoking or whatever has about that effect size. We feel comfortable using that as part of our risk calculation. The other thing that, but
0: when we're using it for heart disease, there are uh, well two things. One, there's interventions, right? Yep. So this might be more useful if there were interventions, but there really are not. Is that fair, or is that unfair?
1: Well, it's a really important issue and it's mostly fair, I think, yes. Um,
0: The other side is, you know, there's a school of thought that says once everybody starts getting their genetic information back, uh, it won't be stigmatizing because we're going to see that everybody is at risk for many things and therefore we're all in the same soup together. And I think, well, maybe, maybe that will be the effect, but I've often had the thought that maybe what it'll simply be is They'll be clarifying about what things we're really frightened of and what things we're less frightened of. And so you work in psychiatry. So that's an area with the great potential to, for people to discover this is something we're really frightened of. So yeah, I think you're I, right. I do think it's, it's definitely not chicken soup here, right? So what are the costs of telling people they're at increased risk for – I assume you're really telling them for psychotic illness or whatever the, the, it's. Uh, I guess the signal you were looking for was for a diagnosis of schizophrenia, but...
1: Right, right. But we also see it... So I I think there are a lot of costs, potentially, especially at this stage. One is that the precision, the penetrance that we just talked about is not that high. Uh, And so what are you really telling people in that scenario that you have, let's say, a twofold increased risk uh, in the future of developing this disorder? When are you going to tell me that? And what do I do with that information. In some ways, it's not that different uh, or it's perhaps a little bit analogous to what people worried about with Alzheimer's disease uh, testing, ApoE4 testing and so on, where, again, not a whole lot of actionability and you know, w- what's been shown there, I think, is that the, the psychological effects of giving that information have been less uh, toxic than people feared. Although here we're talking about something that is an early life uh disorder typically onsets in the in adolescence or early adulthood, and is a long lasting disorder for which uh there isn't a lot of uh obvious actionability and so well, I think- which is
0: which is interesting right because if you're talking about using this predictively, you're really talking about using it. Let's start out by saying in childhood right
1: mm. Right. Certainly could be that, that. Now, if you're going to use it predictively, so you, you make that point, that's another aspect about is that how you would really use it? Could you use it? Could you think of using it in in a sort of a either uh, in combination with lots of other things that might, you know, it might contribute to predictively if you wanted to predict this? But let's say you used it in a kind of diagnostic, uh, supportive way. That is, we're not sure. Is this schizophrenia or is it... Um, Uh, another related psychotic condition, there you get into another cost or another challenge, which is, and this is true for psychiatry, it's true for other medical disorders, but it's really true in psychiatry. And that is there's a lot of genetic overlap among psychiatric disorders and also between psychiatric disorders and a lot of other medical conditions. So the pleiotropy in fact, we looked at this in this study. We did a phenome-wide analysis of this polygenic risk score. So taking all of the diagnoses in the medical record and saying, what else is this associated with? Well, it's associated with uh, lots of other psychiatric diagnoses, including anxiety disorders and bipolar disorder and mood disorder and substance use disorders. It was also associated with some cardi- with some metabolic um, you know, uh, obesity-related things. But we see this in general, you know, uh, the genetic risk for depression is associated with stroke is associated with obesity, with diabetes and so on. So there you get into an interesting dilemma of what exactly are you going to tell people? That's a whole other complication of the problem. Um, but the thing I guess I would worry about most is, as you say, in a situation, unless you have something that you're going to be able to do, the, uh, Sadly, the stigma is a real issue in this area, and we need to overcome it. Um, but I, like you, I think I'm a little bit worried that that's not just going to fall into place uh, when we have all of our genetic risks uh, revealed. And so, so I, I think you know at this point, people think that uh, these kinds of scores are not appropriate for clinical use outside of a you know maybe a research setting where we're Looking at this question, what would you do?
0: Well, I think I've, well, I have a couple of questions. One is one group we have come in that wants some predictive information that aren't necessarily minors, because that's, you know, I'd be super hesitant to use this uh, mm-hmm. information to, to to tell a child <laughs> that they're at advanced risk. It's just in, in, unless you have very good information and something to do. Right. Um, seems like very burdensome Thing to do, and and the reveal studies that looked at ApoE four and results and so on did suggest that people handle getting predictive information better than we might have worried about, but they didn't look at children, um, right. and that and that's a, a just another cuddle of fish, right? I think it's hard to generalize. Each of these situations is is, is quite specific to itself. So schizophrenia risk, children, eh, you know, um, right? But let's say you have siblings to whom we might already be trying to give them a sense of recurrence risk for them. Is there any way that you see polygenic risk scores as useful in refining uh, the risk estimates we now give to relatives?
1: Well, it's interesting. So if you look at, uh, you know, in psychiatric genetic counseling, for example, um, we have limited things that we can do. Obviously, there are certain tests that can be done for idiopathic um, autism or developmental disorders and so on. But, you know, it's not uncommon that people will ask the question, uh, you know, we're, we're getting married or we're having children. Um, I I or my partner or my mother have a, you know, we have a strong family history. Uh, what's the risk? Right. And in fact, family history, which of course integrates a bunch of things, is right now, a, uh, unless we're talking about a rare copy number variant, but in terms of common variant risk, is a stronger risk factor. So for uh the first degree relative or let's say offspring of a parent with uh schizophrenia the risk the, the increased risk is about uh let's say 8 to 10 fold higher which is not what we're seeing yet I think clearly or at least we're not clearly seeing that yet from some of these scores. Mm-hmm. Um I I don't think these scores no at, at this stage would be applicable. I just worry that people you know, it takes a lot of nuance to get the probabilistic and incompleteness nature of something like this. And a condition like this is so misunderstood as it is, that um, I think it's a setup for problems.
0: Yeah. And you know, I, I often feel like we have these conversations in various fields with researchers, when we talk about, they're envisioning, you know, sort of a really nuanced, careful, controlled, use of testing in s- research situations uh with adults and then i feel like and we're gonna move to prenatal testing in five four mm. three two you know it just <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um right. and that's where the marketplace drives in you know
1: right um, yeah but you know another thing that that is we're not even mentioning which is a huge gap here is all of these scores were trained or developed in people of European ancestry, which is not the world. Right. Um, and we, we know from studies that have looked at this that the application of a uh, – it depends in part on the disorder itself – but the application of a score that was trained in a European ancestry population to a non-European ancestry population is certainly not having the same effect size. We need more data actually to get a, a clear sense of what that transferability is, but it can be a 50 percent less uh, you know, lower effect size. And so it's not even clear uh, how widely you can use these scores without a lot more data knowing um, you know, the, the population effects and different ancestries and so on that, that you actually want to apply them
0: all right. Well, I'm going to make, I'm gonna ask you to guess. I'm going to ask you to guess. I've tried, tried not to. It's not a nice thing to do, but to, to project forward. So I'm, what I'm getting from you is that you feel the polygenic risk score, you have some very interesting results. As someone who thinks a lot about what are the genetic underpinnings of psychiatric disease, it's intriguing, but you really don't see a use for them clinically right now. These problems, some of them, Uh, are very large, but but I would assume things we can address, right? We do a better job at getting more diversity into our databases and so on. We address some of those problems going forward with even bigger numbers and more diverse populations. Do you see a clinical role for polygenic risk scores?
1: I do. I do. Um, First of all, I think with, with lots more data, lots more precision, lots more understanding of what their penetrance is, uh, we'll be in better shape, we'll have more population specific data, et cetera. But I think one of the roles can be in uh, not necessarily individual level prediction with any great certainty, um, but stratifying for things like treatment response. For example, if it turned out, although these studies so far have been negative, that we could aggregate genetic markers as one indicator of whether you're likely to respond to one treatment or another, that could be transformative actually. And, you know, one view of these polygenic risk scores is we don't have a lot of biomarkers in psychiatry. These are among the handful, maybe, of really clear biomarkers that do actually carry information, and we're not really using them. And we need to work towards a situation where we can advance the field and um, maybe have more, if not, uh, well, more precision medicine. It may not be personalized uh, at the individual level but at least do better than we're doing. I think also that uh, these things, there are certain situations where there can be actionable effects. And as part of an overall uh, or actionable responses, as part of an overall strategy to improve people's outcomes, I think this you know, genetic vulnerability can carry some of that information. So for example, ironically, you know, depression is a situation which is more complex, uh, at least genetically probably than, than schizophrenia even. Uh, and yet we are learning about actionable things that may reduce people's risk of developing depression. So to the extent that you have actionable, low risk kinds of interventions, maybe at a, you know, public health level, if you Uh, identify that uh, somebody is in a group that is really at high risk, Um, you could really bend the curve of things that right now have uh, major gaps in what we're doing. And it's the kind of thing that we do now with with other risk factors that we work into our understanding of public health and clinical practice. It's just that we need to get a lot more information to know when and where those are really going to help.
0: Well, that's a great answer. Thank you so much, Jordan.
1: Thank you, Laura. It's a Thank pleasure. you so
0: much for coming on today. And it's a message of
1: don't Cautious jump the gun, but yeah. some
0: hopefulness.
1: <laughs> that's right. Well, I'm glad that you're you're uh you know uh giving air to some of these issues because they really are increasingly coming up in all kinds of conversations and in and in clinical practice and we're only gonna see more of this. Um, And, you know, mental health conditions are are the leading cause of disability. And we just need to be doing more to to advance what's available to people.
0: Uh, Well, the 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 external pressure is there. That was what that little survey of my class told me. Um, People people are clamoring for this and. We want to provide it, but we also want to be able to feel that we're not jumping the gun and providing them with, with stuff that's crap and and uh, could be hurtful.
1: I think um, that's just right, yep.
0: And that is about all we have time for today. Jordan, thank you so much. Just what I'd hoped, a great conversation. For anyone who enjoyed it, please come follow me at BeagleLanda.com. Follow me on Twitter at, at Laura Hersher. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invite. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invite.